said, Lord, would you mind coming forward? And friends, just receive this word and may it encourage your hearts. Right, sir. Thanks, Mike. Once again, good morning, everyone. You quickly saw my face earlier. I was just thinking while I was sitting there, for those who are here for the first time, you saw a lot of faces this morning holding this microphone. But this is family. It's not about one person. It's We all grab in together and we're a family, um, sharing the Word of God together and doing what He calls us to do. Friends, earlier this week I saw a video clip and I just had to do more research on this. And what I, fa- what I found out was really, really blessed my heart and... It's a privilege to share it with you this morning. So, if you're a chess player, you would know that the game really ends up, all hangs on the fact that if the king of one of the players cannot move, then it's over for that person. And the game is over for that person. So, when you have your opponent's king trapped, you yell checkmate, and the game is over. Now, once there was a painting that hung in the Louvre Museum in Paris, France, I believe it is up there. Now that painting was painted by a guy named Moritz Rich, and the title of that painting is Checkmate. Checkmate. Now you see that there's two players on that painting. The one on the left hand side depicts the devil, and you can see that he's confidently arrogant. It looks like he is winning this game. And the guy on the right hand side is, you can see in his face, he looks defeated. And this painting is called Checkmate. And the typical interpretation of this painting is that the devil had that magic checkmate. And as the title implies, it's in checkmate. It's over for him. The game is over for him. And if you think of the devil and your own life, what does checkmate mean for your own life? And then there was this guy, a chess grandmaster. You can also call him a chess world champion. And he went to visit the Louvre Museum and he was with a tour group walking around and they came to this particular painting and he stared at that painting and he examined that painting. The tour group went on to the next painting but he couldn't stop staring at this painting. And he ended up, after looking at this painting, he went to the curator of the museum and he said, you know what sir, we need to change this painting. I don't know if you, he wanted them to take a brush and change, physically change the painting. But he said, we need to change this painting or change the name of the painting. Because as this title implies, checkmate, and as the, the, the interpretation of this painting is that the devil has got that guy in checkmate, is incorrect. He says that if you look at the guy on the right-hand side and you look at his chess pieces and you examine it closely, you will see that his king has one more move. The king has one more move. He is not in checkmate. And friends, you are never in checkmate. The king has one more move. The king always has one more move. Even though the devil thinks he is winning. He's grinning there and he's thinking, this is my, this is my game. And the other guy thinks he's losing. He looks defeated. Without even realizing, his king has one more move. And if you look at, if you think of the Bible, you can think from the Old Testament. Daniel in the lion's den. The king had one more move. His friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. 
thought they're going to die, but the king had one more move. You think of the, the woman that was about to be stoned, and Jesus speaks up. The king had one more move. The boy with the two fishes and the five loaves had to feed multitudes of people with that amount of fish and loaves, but the king had one more move. Think about the criminal that hung on the cross next to Jesus, asking Jesus to remember him when he enters the gates of heaven. But Jesus said, you're coming with me. The king had one more move. And last week, last week I saw a picture while we were praying together before, before this. I saw a picture of Jesus and it was a very blurry vision of Jesus. And as I continued and praying about this, I suddenly saw Jesus step forward. And in a beam of light, that blurry picture became a clear, detailed picture of Jesus. I saw the wrinkles on his face. I saw the sweat drops on his forehead. I saw the start of a, a smile starting here on the corner of his mouth. I could see every detail of Jesus. And friends, I think many of us, for many of us, it feels like we're in checkmate. The devil is busy winning. It's not true. The, the vision of Jesus for you is blurry at this moment. But you are never in checkmate. The king has one more move. And I want to read just one scripture with that for you. Um, that I, that I felt while I was seeing this picture of this blurry Jesus and then stepping into the light and seeing every detail. And to, to connect that with uh, the sermon series on prayer as well, Philippians 4 verse 6 to 7 says, The Lord is at hand. And that part, the Lord is at hand, I actually want to translate it to, the king has one more move. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, it's in this time of prayer that we experience in the middle of our circumstances that, hey, the King actually has one more word. That's good. Alright, may this word bless you. Um, thanks, Mike. Good one, amazing God we serve. And we are preaching about prayer. And when we talk about prayer as believers, it's almost like asking a fish to define water. Have you ever thought what a fish would say if you asked him to define water? He was born in it. He's just used to it. It's just there. But when you take that fish out of the water, I don't know, any fish in here? Or any people that want to admit that they're fish, you know what I mean? Okay. There's, some, there's times where you catch a fish and you keep out of the water for a while and then you can release him again. And, but if you ask that fish after releasing it back in the water after a while out of water, what is water to you? And the fish can't communicate its thoughts. Imagine what that fish would say. You would say, man, water is life. Water is where I get food. Water is where I exist. Water, without water, I am dead. Friends, and that is the same impact and the same power that prayer has in the life of the believer. And that is why we took six weeks and we're going to take, we've got, today is week two, we've got another four weeks, that we're just digging into prayer and we're going to dig and dig and dig as a church. Because we're trusting that as God revealed himself to us in prayer, that every single one of you guys will, even if you feel 
feel like that fish that's out of water, that you will start experiencing the life and the joy and the strength and the power and the authority that prayer releases in your life. Yes. Obviously for me preaching, thinking about prayer, I'm reverting back to areas in my life and times in my life where there were no answers and I prayed. It's because of prayer that breakthrough came when it was impossible. And you know what made it supernatural is no one knew what I needed. So God used people to answer needs, but no one knew. I communicated it to no one. So in a way, it's quite difficult to communicate about prayer because you're talking to someone, you know, there's, there's so many directive scriptures that tells you, you must pray. And if you're religious, it's like, okay, I'm going to do the action without understanding. I'm just going to be obedient and pray. Like, okay, who do I pray to? What do I do? And friends, that's why we want to dig into the Word of God and find out what prayer is. Because when, when we as a church click together corporately the power of prayer, there's nothing that will stop the kingdom of God advancing our city. There's nothing that will stop you from sharing the gospel. Not just sharing the gospel because you have to, but sharing the gospel with power and you will see something happen. Prayer's got two aspects to it. And I'm going to end off with this, but the, the one aspect is what God wants to do in you. But very importantly, the foundation, the the, the philosophical foundation that substantiates prayer makes prayer impossible for you just to pray for yourself. If you understand prayer, you will never get to a place where you just pray for yourself. You will always, prayer will always overflow. If you are spending time in God's presence, something will happen in you and people around you will start mattering more to you than yourself. Then you know prayer is starting to work in your life. And you start praying for other people. And all of a sudden, your prayer sets other people free. Let me just give you a quick example to encourage you with that. Jesus has ascended to heaven, and we see in the beginning of the book of Acts, now the disciples receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and something happens in their lives, and Peter and John is going to the temple. As was their custom, they just go to church. And on their way to church, they see a beggar next to the road. And this guy is so disheartened because he's lame, he cannot walk. And he's just sitting there and, you know, the whole picture that the Bible paints is he's looking at the ground and he's just with his hands out like this. And Peter and John looks, walks past him and they look at him and they say, hang on, something needs to be done here. And the Bible said, they said to him, look to us. So we can understand that this guy was just looking at the ground and just hoping. Hoping for something to fall into his hands. Just the bare minimum that I can just survive. And the apostle said to them, or said to him, look at us. And Peter looked at him and he said, silver and gold we do not have, but what we do have we give to you. In the name of Jesus, you stand up and you walk. And power came to that man's legs and he got up. And even in his faith, Listness. God used the faith in Peter and John to make him walk and a great miracle happened and the church grew. Friends, that's the foundational principle of prayer. It never just ends with you. I'm excited as I think about praying. 
the sermon series is called Let's Pray, following the example of Jesus and the first church. Who of you wants the church to look like the church in Acts? You don't have to raise your hands, but I know every one of you is saying this. Because friends, God was just everywhere. God was the water that the church lived in. His presence was the water that fed the church. His presence was the water that defined the identity of the church. So let's follow the example of Jesus in the first church. Last week we preached about it. You can listen to it online. Today we're going to talk about prayer central. Prayer is a central, it's not peripheral. In many Christians' lives, and if we are really serious, we have to say prayer is peripheral. Pastor Eric Papatel, he leads our church in Midrand. Phenomenal leader. I, I have such love and respect for Eric, and I'm going to see him in Cape Town now. But Eric said this once. He said, prayer is not the emergency wheel of our lives. It is the steering wheel of our lives. What a cool quote. Because how often do we use prayer when, you know, it's like the last resort. It's like, man, this wheel is so flat, and the room is gone, and there's nothing left. Let's just put an emergency wheel on us like prayer. Let's end off. God, please help out you. And Eric said, it's the steering wheel that directs your life into God's presence. In Luke 11, verse 1 to 5, we see the disciples doing something quite unique. Let me read it to you. The Bible says, Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And then a very fascinating transition happens. The next verse says, Which of you who has a friend and then Jesus goes on and he says, if this friend comes to you and he knocks on your door, we'll keep your door closed. So in the context of prayer, Jesus cannot, not even Jesus, defines prayer outside of the context of relationship. So who do you pray to? Uh, God. Do you know that God? Because that will define everything about your prayer. If we do not understand friendship with God and that there is a God that truly wants to be involved with our lives, prayer will always be a discipline that you engage in and you just have this idea of, let's hold thumbs. In my days it was like you hold thumbs. Do you know what that means? Young people, that means that you hope it will going to happen. It's like you cross your fingers. Friends, and that's not the God that we serve. That's not the God that you, that's got the last move. What, a, what, what an illustration about God. I tell you, you can look like, and I love the illustration that, that Noah used, the devil thought checkmate when Jesus was hanging on that cross. And God just said, okay, one more move, my friend. One more move. Friends, God got one more move. He had one more move for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I promise you, they had some prayer time there. Often we define prayer as a moment. Did you pray today? 
oh no, you know what? I didn't have my 20 minutes of prayer. That's prayer time for the day. And then I exit my prayer time and then I do life. You know, that, secular, that sacred moment of 20 minutes with God is prayer. And the rest of the day I don't pray. They asked one of these great old saints. They said to him, how long do you pray at a time? And he said, uh, two to five minutes. And then he says, but remember, I don't go 15 minutes on a day without praying. You get that? Friends, prayer is what defines us. It's a privilege that we have. It's a privilege that when you are in your workplace and you are facing a situation that you can literally speak to the God who promises that he will never leave you nor say, God, I don't know what to do in this. God, will you do a miracle in this person that I'm spending his life? God is calling us to pray and it's relational. Because the scripture ends with the scripture, which of you who has a friend? Prayer is friendship. Prayer is a living relationship with a God that never leaves you nor forsakes you. Prayer and the Holy Spirit is inextricably linked. Because if you read the, the, the rest of Luke 11, you get to the last verse that says, If your earthly fathers know how to give you good gifts, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? It is an incredible chapter to study about friendship with God and about what a friend does because the friend gives you exactly what you need. And I think, frankly, you mentioned this morning in our prayer service, uh, when we were praying for this service, he said, God gives you exactly what you need, not necessarily what you always want. Like the Spice Girls. Well, who sang, let me tell you what I want, or what you want, what you really, really want. I'm old, I forget these things. Let me tell you what you want. You want the move of prayer, friends. And the most unique thing is how God will engage with you in prayer, you honest, is different to how you will engage with me in prayer. The disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. Why would they ask Jesus to teach them how to pray if they have seen at that time of their lives maybe thousands of people pray? Have you ever thought of that? Because something different happened when Jesus prayed. His prayer was a little bit different. In the context of this passage, the previous chapter, you will, if you, if you study, if you study the context, you see Jesus setting up the 72. Just before this happened, he sent out the 72 in town and he said to them, just go, go pray for people, go, go help them. And then the disciples came back and they said, Man, infants, demon, demon, demons, uh, demons. Jeez. So my tongue will catch up with my thoughts soon. But even demons leave when we pray for them. And Jesus said, don't, don't celebrate that. Celebrate that your name is written in the book of life. And what's the next thing that happened? Where's my notes help? The parable of the Good Samaritan. Then he tells the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then Mary and Martha, the Mary and Martha moment, where Mary chose the best portion. What did Mary choose? Friendship with Jesus, not working in the house. It's like, you know what, if Jesus comes to visit, who of you wants your house to be quite neat at that moment? Jesus doesn't care about a neat house, he cares about you. Why do you think he came? Friends, it's relational. 
to Joe Bonifacio, one of our bosses in the Philippines. Joe is just the most humble, courageous, incredible leader. He leads the fifth largest church in the world. This guy's got something to say. Alright, and Joey said, he asked a bunch of people, what is the one word that defines the Bible? Now if I ask this, I'm, I'm sure I'll get about 20 words that just comes to mind. But what is the one word that defines the Bible? And Joey got to the place where he just says, the word that defines the Bible is Father. One word. If you want to, if you want to just summarize the Bible. You see humanity separated from a dad. And Francois Lou is going to have their little one this week. Give me one thing that will separate that man from his child. Because he's a dad. Friends, if we understand that father aspect of God's heart, prayer will become natural. And prayer will never become structured because you can compare your prayer life to Luan. He's like our resident angel, okay? <laughs> so we just important him. Everything he does is beautiful and holy and, 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 and pristine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. But friends, there's a there's a dynamic that God wants to unlock for us. Because he's your father. And I know Lord knows God as Father. So there's the context for you. What did Jesus do after these amazing things happened? If you study the context, you can read in Matthew. Matthew refers to the scripture as well. Let me just give you, uh, if you want, you can, you can study Matthew 6 and then Luke 11. Basically, he talks about the same time. It's two, two, of, the, uh, two of the writers that, that wrote about the same moment. So it's in and around Mary and Martha's house that this happened, that the disciples came to Jesus and asked him to teach them how to pray. After all these successes of sending out the 72, demons fleeing, talking about the Good Samaritan having the right heart towards people that's in need. Mary and Martha. What does Jesus do? That's like in time to have a party. That's like when we win the match. It's like, yeah, demons are out. Man, people from one group or one culture loves people from another culture so much so that they'll sacrifice for them. Man, I've got people that, that truly know me and that spend time with me. What did Jesus choose to do in that moment? To celebrate the victory publicly or to take the victory to God privately? He chose to pray. And he prayed in such a way that his disciples said, What is this? Jesus didn't give them a seminar on prayer. He simply said to them, You know what, if I want to teach you how to pray, just listen to me speak to my dad. Our Father. In Luke it says only Father. In Matthew it says our Father. But Jesus is not taking them into this classroom teaching thing because many of you guys are expecting this. Give me like five, five steps for effective prayer. It's like me telling Luke, Luke, here's five steps for you to really please me. My son will look at me and like, Dad, what the heck? What did you just <laughs> There's no five steps in relationships, friend. There's just true, sincere heart connection. I God, I love you. Throughout his ministry, Jesus led his disciples into living a life of prayer. 
Luke 18 verse 1 to 8, you can read the whole passage. I'm going to read the first two, two verses. But I, I'm actually going to summarize them. Jim, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And then he talks about a lady that went to the judge and she said, give me justice and the judge just ignored her. And she went again and again and again and the judge got so tired that eventually he said, oh my word, she wearies me, she wears me out, let me just give her justice. And then it says, will not God bring about justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Friends, listen to this definition. John Piper says this about prayer. God has established prayer as the, be at the, as the means by which we receive His supernatural help. And without supernatural help, we cannot live a life worthy of the gospel. God has established it. He's established relationship as the means by which you can live the life that the gospel calls you to live. And you can do it. That is the beauty of the gospel. Is as much as the gospel can impact and change a six-year-old's life. The gospel can arrest you when you're 55, 60 years old, 70 years old. And take your breath away. And thrust you in a relationship with God where all of a sudden you understand that He is real. And Romans says He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. I don't know how many times this last couple of months I've sat with people in counseling and then we pray, but you can sense in the prayer, it's like, man, this is like throwing out a Hail Mary. You know those Hail Mary bosses, all the sportsmen will understand. It's like, man, if this works, it's going to be spectacular. It's like, it's like, it's almost like rugby. Or the Italians, the Italians do weird things at times. It works like one out of every ten times, but man, it's spectacular. Prayer is not like that. Because prayer is in a relationship with a God that truly knows you. He truly knows how we want to do and he truly can answer the prayer. Friends, I can share testimonies. One of the testimonies, I was doing missions work in China and I can remember one day. Now listen, if you do missions work in China, you don't want to run out of money. Okay. True. Their food is too nice. No, I'm kidding. But... It's not about the food, it's just about simply making ends meet. And I got to a place where I realized, man, my, it's just not going to work. And I sat in a little hotel room in a city called Zhuhai. Trust the Chinese to choose names, okay? And here I am in my hotel room, and I look at things and I just pray and I just say, God, you know this. And friends, I had an encounter with God that day, and no one in this world knew what happened. And I'm not going to elaborate on this, but I can tell you, in less than five days, God started doing miracles and provided in my needs exceedingly abundantly above to the point where I was able to give to others. Less than five days. Because God God has prayers. I can tell you about Elaine that was in London in our church. And her one desire was to have a goldfish. Now listen, if you have one desire, don't waste it on a fish, okay? But <laughs> just get to the point. Her one desire was a fish, and no one knew about it. And one day I 
we had we had a gathering, uh, just a bunch of people in church came together and they pitched up the, the goldfish in one of those goldfish bowls. Alright, now that in itself for me is depressing. But <laughs> You know, and, and you know how she was carrying this? It's on the London uh, transport, on the bus, and on the tube. She picked it up. And then I said to her, tell me the story about the fish. And she was crying as she told me this. She said, you know what? She's work she was working quite a low-paying job, etc., etc. And she said, man, she just, she wanted a fish. She wanted a fish. No one knew about it. And one day she walked into someone's house. And literally this person said to them, you know what, there's a fish in that little aquarium bowl. Would you just like to take it? Because we don't know how to take care of this thing. Friends, that's the power of prayer. It's not about the miracles. It's not about the great things that shift. It's about a father that's intimately involved with the small details, with the goldfish of your life. And in your estimation, it might be goldfish. But I tell you, if my kids come to me with small requests, it matters. Not because I think a goldfish is going to change his life, but because I truly know it will click with his heart. And I tell you, if you speak to Elaine today, there's something that she understands about prayer. So friends, we can teach you a lot about prayer. You know what the point is? Just start doing it. Just get one request and throw it out there. Linda's going to preach next week on, on the Lord's Prayer. Not on the Lord's academic teaching on prayer. He didn't launch into a massive teaching. He just said, this is how I chat to my dad. Just listen to me. And you start doing the same. And as you do the same as I do, God will show you the way. And your prayer might start sounding a little bit different to me. But you know what? Because God's relationship with you is a little bit different to me. And your purpose and your calling is a little bit different to me. So it's all about authentic relationship. Prayer is an authentic, real, relational response to God's character. That he proved in his son when his son came to earth and died for us. I want, to tell, I want to take you to Matthew 11, verse 20, 27 to 29. Just as, in a, in a way, to tie this together. Verse 11, uh, verse 27 says this, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The word reveal means unveil, disclose in full. The word knowing the Father means epigenosco, <coughs> thoroughly and fully acquainted. So Jesus is saying no one knows God except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father. That is why prayer is inextricably linked to an understanding of who God is. And the question that you have to ask yourself, is God the God that has one more move left? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, I think it would have been, listen, for me, I don't like heat. You know, slight heat gets me sweaty. Slight heat. Now, if they're busy taking me to this furnace, and I see the gods that's taking me to the furnace dying because of the heat, you know, I'm going to be pretty nervous. Don't know about you guys. You guys are all too brave, and you'll face it with faith. And we're like, yeah, just go for it. I'm going to be, I think, likely kicking and screaming. 
Yeah, just take meat with you. <laughs> but what if you are the meat? Okay, now, but, Friends, those to whom Jesus reveals the Father, He unveils the Father, that you can know Him intimately. And what does this, this definition say? That you can be thoroughly acquainted with the Father. If you understand the Father, you will understand communication. If you're struggling with your understanding of the Father, you will, struggling, you will struggle with prayer. And prayer will be peripheral, and it will be a spare wheel you use just to get through life. And it will continuously be whole marriage that you throw at God, hoping that He hears you. And in God's grace, He hears your whole marriage as well. Because it is the goodness of God that draws you to repentance. It is the moment that He gives you a goldfish. And you thought, man, who would listen? You know, is goldfish important to God? Yes. Friends, philosophically, there's three ways that you can live. You can live in an atheist that God does not exist. Atheism is God does not exist. And Rice Brooks says it so well. Atheism does not take away the pain. It takes away the hope. So atheism leaves you with your pain and steals your hope. That's what atheism does. Then you have deistic Deism. Deism is a belief that God exists and God created the earth and it's almost like a ball that it kicked into motion and it just stacks back without being involved with that. And it just rolls and wherever it rolls, it rolls. And then there's theism where you truly believe in a relational God. But friends, I've caught myself as a theist believing in God and not just believing in God, I know God exists. I've seen God move. I've seen God answer questions. I've, I've, I've felt God do something in my innermost being that no man or no woman could do after many years of struggle. Ask my parents. Man, I tell you, my dad gave me so many hidings. And I tell you, but you cannot get to a heart from the, from the bum. Okay? You cannot get to a heart from the outside in. That's where God comes from the inside out. So I'm theistic. But if I lose the concept of God being a relational God, I will deal with it and I will handle my relationship with it on a theist, on a deistic philosophy. How many Christians look like deists, but they proclaim that they're theists? How many? And friends, it is the church's fault. Because we preach a gospel that is so weak, it doesn't even get close to your heart. It's like, oh, you know what, you can, you know, receive Jesus and you can continue living in sin because there's super grace. And if you switch on God TV, it'll confuse you and it'll convince you that you're cool with God. But you are absolutely clueless of who Jesus is. I've sat with men that has read the Bible. One guy, man, I don't think there was a verse or a word in his Bible that wasn't highlighted. He's really read his Bible many times. And I asked him, what must I do to become a son of God? And he couldn't answer me. And he read the Bible. That guy must have read his Bible at least ten times. How many times do we read the Bible and we completely miss God? Kevin York, one of my role models in my life, he said that anthropologists and sociologists study culture. 
And one of the way they, they explain it is they say culture has weaved such a thick web around humanity. They equate culture to a web that's weaved around humanity. And he says it's a thick web. And he says when we preach a thin gospel, the church will be cannibalized by a thick culture. When we are a church that is thin on prayer, don't even try to go out there where the culture is thick. The culture will eat you alive and spit you out and make fun of the God that you proclaim deistically that you know, but theistically you don't. Friends, God is calling us as a church to be thick in prayer. Thick. It's like when you don't know how to do it, if you don't know how to pray, you know what, just just start with the Lord's Prayer. That's why we're going to preach through this. It's going to help you. But friend, God wants, God wants to show you something about Himself. Okay. In the rest of that scripture. So He talks about knowing God. And He talks about revelation of who God is. Then He goes on to say, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me just end off with this. Let me talk about the yoke for a second. When you step into a relationship with God, when you step into this water that I refer to, and you start breathing and for the first time, it's just like, man, life is returning. Jesus is equating this. He says, if I reveal my Father to you, it's like taking my yoke upon you. You know what a yoke is? A yoke is something that you yoke oxen together with. In the olden days, that's what it meant. Is you would yoke two oxen together and you would use them to plow the ground. It's a, it's a, it was a thick piece of wood that would hang over their knees. And the, and the concept about a yoke is not positive. Because it's like, Ugh, it weighs you down. Yet Jesus talks about a yoke as positive. Because if you have the strongest person in the universe next to you, he's going to lift your yoke. In Isaiah, let me just get the, get the scripture. In Isaiah, I tell my notes. Sorry, but in Isaiah, you can, sorry, you can Google it. But it's in Isaiah, it talks about how the anointing breaks the yoke of bondage. So the Bible gives you two concepts of yokes. The one is a yoke of bondage and the other one is a yoke with Jesus that lifts. Friends, the gospel, relationship with God, prayer will always lift the burden. If you leave church today and you are more burdened because you have to pray more, read your Bible, and we burden you, we haven't preached the gospel. There's a God in heaven that says, I want to be yoked with you, my son. I want to be yoked with you. You might not understand, but just talk to me about it and see how I will sort it out. So many things I didn't understand about Christianity when I started my relationship with God. And God graciously started revealing it to me and he will do the same with you. And he will make us a church where we start loving prayer and we will become thick in prayer and we will walk into a thick culture and men and women will bow their knees. They will get saved. You will share the gospel and you would think, oh man, I didn't share it right and I didn't have all the details right. And all of a sudden that friend of yours would just look at you and say, 
I want to know Jesus this way. And you'll start seeing how God changes their lives. I can ask people now to get up and ask and, 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 and share with you in the last six months what God has done in your life. And every single one of you will be weeping. He's a real God that's really interested to answer your prayers and to really walk with you and to lift your yoke. You know what the yoke of Jesus Christ was. You know, it's, it's, it's a big wooden beam. Can you remember what Jesus carried up the hill? It was a big yoke. They carried up the hill because you are not able to do it on your own. Friends, when we talk about prayer, we're talking about getting alongside Jesus and saying, Jesus, this cross is too heavy, but man, you carried it. Can I just stand? Can I just walk next to you? He's a gracious king. Friends, there's an apostolic dynamic to prayer, and I mentioned it earlier in my sermon. Pray goes to you and through you. Let us never forget as believers that if you only pray for your own needs to be met, you are missing the philosophical foundation upon which prayer was built. Prayer is always bigger than you. Always beyond your need. Always for the person next to you. And what does Jesus promise if we get this yoke Thing right, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, If you take your if you take my yoke upon you, you will receive rest. My prayer for us as a church is that we will go into prayer times with God and we'll come out rested, refreshed, and ready. Not just Hail Mary, man. I just threw that prayer out there. Maybe, maybe he's able, but I don't think he is. I don't think he's interested. Friends, God is very interested in your life. And he's calling us as a church, and he's calling you as a believer. Let's start with you. I don't know if this is the only time that you will visit our church. I don't know if it's the only time that I'll see you. I hope it's not. But I tell you, God wants to do something in your life. And I want to challenge you this week, maybe even today, to take... A note, make, make a note on your phone, get a notebook, I don't know how you do this, but to write a big request and just say to God, God, I'm deistic in the way that I treat you. Would you give me a theistic revelation? Because I want to follow you as Father, not as distant Creator. And I am convinced in my heart we will start hearing testimonies of what God has done. Because you took a chance and you said, God, I really want to know you. I'm tired of this deistic time of Christian, type of Christianity where I have to call myself a Christian. I want to start living a life where other people look at me and they say, Will you teach me how to pray? That happens in our Canadian groups. At times we sit with humble people and they're just like, oh, you know, I don't understand prayer. Teach me how to pray. Then we go into the one to one and we dig into it. And they start praying in their way, and God answers them in His way. And all of a sudden, you have the most dangerous man or woman in the world. Friend, that's our hearts, and I truly pray that God ministers to your heart. And that He will lead us into prayer. When do we pray? We pray before church. 8 o'clock to 8.30, we pray here. You cannot believe, I would say, almost half the church was there this morning. 
Come join us 8 to 8.30. And you don't have to come religiously every Sunday, but just come pray with us. And we pray the first Thursday of every month. It was announced. It was announced. This coming Thursday. We prayed together at, at the, the stadium as a church. So I'm going to end off now and pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of getting close to the creator of heaven and earth. Knowing that Jesus, you made a way that we can say, God, help. My God, my Father, help. Lord, I pray for every person here, Lord God, that you will open prayer up to them, Lord God, as a living relationship with you in a special, special way.